Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Promising Practices for Meeting the Behavioral Health Needs of Duly Eligible Older Adults. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on August 2, 2018. In this podcast, Molly Reese Gavin, President of Connecticut Community Care, provides a social worker perspective on meeting the behavioral health needs of duly eligible older adults. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be participating in this webinar, and I wanted to just take one moment to particularly thank Andrea. It's far easier for the rest of us to be talking about um, this very challenging issue from a professional perspective, and the truth of the matter is that Andrea is talking about this not only from a professional perspective, but regarding her mom. And so, Andrea, I just want to say a special thanks and a special vote of confidence to you for doing that. I was delighted to see in the initial poll um, that many of you are social workers and care managers, and that's an, uh, the profession that is nearest and dearest to my heart. And so the first thing I want to share with you as social workers is what I think are aspects of our social work role that are not necessarily unique. They might be unique, but not always but are the the skills that we really bring to this intervention. And the first of those is the fact that we are looking at individuals from the perspective of individual in family, whatever that family may be, individual in family, that doesn't have to be blood relatives, it's who the individual considers to be their family, So as I said, individual, in family, in community, and in society at large. And so that we are very conscious of the interplay between individual, family, community, and society. And we are working with all of those aspects as we are trying to address behavioral health needs of duly eligible individuals. Secondly, the other um, contribution of social work historically has been an in-depth knowledge of community resources and of benefit programs available to individuals. And that knowledge of community resources and benefits is the logical consequence of our looking at that individual in family and in community. Please move to the next slide, 28, please. Um, So what I wanted to begin with is to let you know that this duly eligible population differs in many ways from our uh, work with Medicare-only beneficiaries, and we're only going to highlight two quick examples of that for you. Duly eligible individuals are far more likely to indicate that they are in poor health, in fact, three times as as often listing or indicating that they are in poor health, and strikingly needing assistance with three or more activities of daily living, 30% versus 9% of Medicare-only individuals. So we realize that when we have that dual complication of age, health status, and then all of the issues that are associated with Medicaid eligibility in terms of poverty, access, stigma, and so forth, that these result in some very, very significant needs with this population. 
we also find that our older adults are facing many developmental changes. And I always find it fascinating that this is an aspect of the aging experience that sometimes we um, ignore. And it's very important when we're looking at behavioral health uh, challenges. So we know, for example, that the simple impact of retirement on an individual who has worked outside the home can be very significant. Individuals face a loss of engagement with their coworkers, with the tasks of their work. Um, retirement doesn't always happen the way that the individual might have perceived it. So sometimes people think that they have been, you know, kicked out of their place of employment, their job has been terminated early because of their age. And so the the glow of the, you know, golden handshake package is not there for everybody. In addition to that, we find that even those who are not working outside the home experience significant changes as they approach their later years in terms of their role within their family and the fact that they may not be caring for individuals anymore who they were caring with before or they may have any number of other changes in that role inside the house as well as a role in retirement situations external to the home. We know that individuals also experience a loss of friends and relatives. And back in my social work school days, I remember that we referred to this as the theme of recurring loss. I want to give you a quick example of that from my own family. My dad was one of 14 brothers and sisters. And at this point in time, out of that original 14 brothers and sisters, there are only two of them left. My uh, Uncle Ronnie celebrated his 91st birthday this year, and he and one sister are the only remaining family members of 14, including all of the spouses and significant others, as well as the actual siblings. So when we talk about a theme of recurring loss, loss after loss of friends and family and loved one, think about my Uncle Ronnie and what that means to people. We also see that the decline in functional abilities has a major impact on individuals uh, in terms of their behavioral health as people find themselves less able to be independent in various activities of their life. Additionally, our older adults may face stigma, discrimination, and isolation. And to me, an interesting example of stigma Next time you're in a shop where they sell greeting cards, and I know we're sending less greeting cards now and more online communication, but take a look at the Hallmark section of your pharmacy and look at the cards for kids to send to their grandparents. And after so many years of, of, of education regarding elder issue, note how issues, note how many of those cards are pictures of animals. The elder is a rabbit, the elder is a squirrel with a hat or an apron on, on the individual, and so we see that that image of elders is not um, conducive to people feeling like they are active, engaged members of our society. Um, we also find that there is more and more research and more and more understanding about what is happening regarding social isolation and our elders. And one recent study suggests that the impact of social isolation is 
is every bit as significant as and, and as threatening to health as an individual smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So we have to be sure that we are doing everything we can to help individuals decrease social isolation. Next slide, please. That's number 29. Um, and so an example of that would be in the area of transportation. And here again, I'm talking about, at this point, more systems issues, not issues related to the individual. So on the systems issue side, transportation interventions are critical to support uh, our elders and to, uh, to help them to deal with behavioral health consequences. Um, and again, it's really important, and I know all of you know this, you're the expert on your own geographic area, your own community, and we're suggesting some best practices, some things that we have seen work. Obviously, it really depends on what is available to you or what you can create in your own community to support older adults. So we're seeing more and more on the horizon regarding what are referred to as ride-hailing apps. I saw recently that MIT Age Lab, AARP Foundation, and the United and United Health are teaming up to look at how to make these ride-hailing apps more accessible to older adults so that people are able to uh, maximize the usefulness of these kinds of interventions. Other examples are obviously Lyft, Uber, people are attempting to find ways to connect these new resources to older adults who may not have historically uh, used the iPhone, used the computer in order to, uh, to attract that kind of a connection, and we're trying to do more and more of that. In some states, there is Medicaid coverage for non-emergency medical transportation. Obviously, we know that this varies state to state, but it's definitely something worth looking into in your state as a way, again, primarily to provide transportation to physician's appointments, but can be very useful for individuals who are struggling with that uh, transportation. Moving past transportation, we're also seeing more and more self-management support programs, uh, just to name two of them. Uh, many of you may be aware of the chronic disease self-management programs, which are becoming more and more widespread in many states so that individuals can attend a series of programs and workshops on chronic disease self-management, diabetes self-management, um, issues that have to do with falls. There are a number of opportunities for older adults to participate in that kind of self-mastery program. And using the word mastery brings us to the Aging, aging Mastery Program, which is also known as AMP, again, a, a vetted intervention that covers all aspects of aging and is highly recommended for older adults who are able to participate. Another issue that we can definitely support our elders with is any number of lifestyle interventions. And we don't have to necessarily be experts in all of these, but we can help our consumers, help our clients to make the appropriate connections. So what immediately comes to my mind is increasing physical activity. If that literally means walking around your apartment 
more than you have been doing in the past, then that's an increase in physical activity. Obviously, we want people to be checking with their primary care providers when they're increasing physical activity, but these don't have to be getting people ready to run a marathon. It can be very simple, basic increases that can help to enhance behavioral health issues for our clients. Hobbies and interests are very helpful. Obviously, anything we can do to reduce social isolation and help people to visit either telephonically or directly with families and friends. The role of getting adequate sleep is critical as well as eating a well-balanced diet. Next slide, please. That would be number uh, 30. Thank you. Um, and again, social engagement is critical. We're reading more and more, seeing more and more about what we're calling warm line calls. And some of you may remember back in the day, we used to refer to this as telephone reassurance. But this is a peer-run listening line for non-urgent calls. And elders are matched with volunteers who make these phone calls in order to offer social engagement. If your community doesn't have such a warm line call, it's something that you and other colleagues in the community might be able to consider in terms of a potential service development. We know that Meals on Wheels, also known as home-delivered meals, are critically important for over 2 million, 2.4 million elders, uh, who, many of whom are socially isolated, are receiving home-delivered meals, and 40% of these individuals say that they would have virtually no or little daily contact with other individuals if it were not for the volunteer who delivers those meals. And finally, another opportunity is through Experience Corps. And again, these are best practice examples for you to consider, which is an intergenerational volunteer-based tutoring program. Again, matching older adults with children in high need in elementary schools to provide assistance with reading. Moving on to slide 31, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the social worker perspective and the interview process. And, and share with you my commitment, my belief that that interview process involves the physical, the behavioral, and the functional status of the individual. And as stated by our previous speakers, the, the role of an interdisciplinary team is critical to this. And when I say that, I say I agree that the broader the team, the, be the, the better. I also want to say that if in your local community you don't have a geriatric psychiatrist, then work with the staff that you do have. Work with the professionals who are available to you. Geriatric psychiatrist, primary care physician, community partners, and always, always caregivers and other family members. And it's important that with the client, not for the client, we identify the interventions and the solutions that are going to help to meet their needs. Next slide, 32, please. What exactly is a comprehensive social work assessment? To me, a comprehensive social work assessment aims to understand the current state of the older adult and to identify goals that are meaningful to them. Tools that are commonly used as 
part of that social work assessment, and note that I'm emphasizing the word part because these are by no means comprehensive assessment tools, are the mini mental state examination and the four-item geriatric depression scale. It's important for us as social workers to recognize that there are many, many challenges to that assessment process that can compromise the individual's ability to participate in the assessment, including physical and emotional issues. Examples are hearing loss, vision loss, discomfort, pain. Additionally, conversely, it's helpful to realize that older skills, older adults can bring unique strength to the assessment process. The most obvious example of that is strong coping skills. Our elders are survivors. And one way or the other, they have survived to a point in life where they are now availing themselves of our assistance. But the coping skills that they developed in the past, some good, some helpful, maybe others not so helpful, they still had a lifetime of experience with coping skills, and we can help to support them with good coping skills as they move forward. And when you have an older adult who, is, who wants to actively engage in that assessment process, you have all that you need in order to move forward. Next slide, please, number 33. So that assessment should include the following. If it's possible, we really would like to see the physical health status provided by a primary care physician, behavioral health information, and status provided by, for example, a, a geriatric psychiatrist, if possible. And in both of those instances, we also really do want to know the individual's perception of his or her health, because that individual perception is critical to their attitude and their ability to make changes. We're concerned about their functional status, their activities of daily living, their instrumental activities of daily living, what they can do by themselves, what they need support with, what are they unable to accomplish. Equally important is an assessment of their environment, finances, and their social support kinship system. It's critically important that that assessment be person-centered and non-judgmental. A social worker needs to be skilled in motivational interviewing. And as mentioned earlier, we want to be sure that we are addressing that individual circumstances with an eye towards the person in family, in community, in systems context. Goals and plans of care need to be developed, again, by the individual, not for the individual. We need to understand the client's goals, the client's perspective, and then initiate referrals, provide follow-up, monitoring, and the appropriate documentation to address the individual's ability to meet those, girl, those goals. Next slide, 34. Here again, we're looking at possible collaborators. And when I talk about possible collaborators at the moment, I'm talking about them not just in the context of the individual, but in the context of bringing about community change. So a primary care physician, 
geriatric psychiatrist or a geriatric physician, a federally qualified health center, your local hospitals, clinics, other local providers, faith-based organizations can work with you in developing new services and new approaches. It's a matter of finding allies. Other obvious examples would be local senior centers and municipal government. I now want to move on to, a, to slide number 35 and give a very brief explanation of a case a study of an individual who I am going to refer to as Mary. Mary is 65 years old. She is a woman of color who lives in a third floor post-World War II walk-up in a poor urban neighborhood, frankly, of any urban area in the United States. Mary is in Philadelphia, Mary is in Baltimore, Mary is in Atlanta, Mary is in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mary is throughout our country in urban areas. She is living in an apartment, as I said, a third floor walk-up that doesn't have an elevator and the stairwell is very dark. The, lights, uh, the light bulbs have burned out on some areas of the stair, and very infrequently does the landlord come and change those light bulbs. None of the kitchen appliances or bathroom fixtures, fixtures have ever been upgraded, as far as we know, in the 35 years that Mary has lived in this apartment. She does not have air conditioning, and she does not own a car. Mary completed, she thinks, the fifth grade in school in Mobile, Alabama. Her health literacy is poor. She doesn't know her neighbors in her community, despite the fact that she's lived there for 35 years because she is isolated on that third floor. She fears violence in her community, and so there is much less community interaction among neighbors. And over the years, she has become less involved in her faith community, partly because of her own health, partly because of transportation issues. She raised her two children in this two-bedroom apartment, and now she is raising her two teenage grandsons. She's raising her grandsons because her daughter, the mother of the two grandsons, has been incarcerated for the possession of illegal substances for two years so far. And I assure you that this daughter is going to spend more time in jail than most white-collar criminals spend for their crimes. Mary's medical history is complicated. She has severe hypertension, debilitating arthritis, morbid obesity, poor vision, diabetes, and frequent urinary tract infections. And her behavioral health history includes depression. <clears throat> her medical care is provided at the clinic of a local acute care hospital where she frequently misses appointments, does not refill her prescriptions, and ignores recommendations regarding weight loss. And I don't have to tell you that Mary is labeled by the medical community as being non-compliant. Moving on to slide 37, 
um, we have taken a number of different approaches with Mary in terms of the Healthy Idea Program, which helps us to identify uh, whether or not a person is suffering from depression and make the appropriate referrals. And we worked very, very hard to be sure that the goals were established by Mary, not for Mary, as I've mentioned before. And the most important goal to Mary is, quote, keeping the boys safe. So everything that had to do with establishing school and community contacts for her grandsons were her most important goals, and her health needs came well after that. On to the next slide, please, 38. What had to happen was that the clinic staff, she received most of her care at a local acute care hospital clinic, needed to be educated regarding Mary's challenges, including the medical appointments, refilling the medication, and it was very important that Mary and her community social worker, community staff provide that education. Contact was established with the school social worker and guidance counselor regarding the two grandsons, Transportation was arranged, appropriate referrals were made, including for that transportation, and the social worker saw to it that Mary was referred to any number of programs for which she was eligible. Last slide, number 39. I don't have to tell anybody on this webinar that progress is often incremental and slow. Mary is now consistently attending her medical appointments, I should say with more consistency than before. She's received diabetic education in her home from a licensed home health nurse and a local home delivered meals program as providing a diabetic diet. She has maintained the connection with the school social worker. We are considering to address challenges regarding access to grocery stores, summer program and after school programming for the grandsons, and housing issues. So this is not a, a quick fix by any means, you all know that, but this is the, the route that we have begun with Mary. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Loon Group and is supported through the Medicare Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations in care models. To learn more about our current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.